0: I'm Lee C. Camp, and this is No Small Endeavor, exploring what it means to live a good life.
1: I had this intention that I needed to start living an honest life.
0: That's Martin Sheen, world-renowned actor, perhaps best known for his role as President Jed Bartlett on the television series The West Wing. But in our conversation, fame took a back seat so we could talk about his social activism as well as his journey back to the faith of his youth.
1: And so I marched over there on May Day, 1981, and I walked out into the empty church. I wept with a measure of joy that I had never experienced before. And I was so happy to be home. Hmm. I'd finally gotten back home.
0: All this and much more coming right up. Hey, friends, Lee Seacamp of No Small Endeavor here. Hey, would you like to expand the community of people talking about the things you like to talk about? Here is an easy way to do that. And we, I would be most grateful if you were to do so. Go over to your favorite podcast listening app, click on reviews, and leave No Small Endeavor a glowing five-star review. Tell folks perhaps about some episode you liked in particular. And tell folks what you like generally about No Small Endeavor. The topics, the dashingly handsome articulate host, or whatever it is that floats your boat. That will help more people find us, which will expand the community of people talking about the things you like to talk about. Especially when you make it one of those five-star reviews. Thanks! I'm Lee C. Camp. This is No Small Endeavor exploring what it means to live a good life as i've mentioned before on the show i've been on sabbatical this last semester from my day job as a professor so i've used that time to travel and tape interviews with some folks with whom i've long wanted to sit and talk it's been a true delight on a recent trip to california i interviewed several peace activists reverend james lawson an architect of nonviolent strategy of the American Civil Rights Movement and close friend of Dr. King. Also sat down with Father John Deere, who's been arrested some eighty times protesting nuclear weapons and war making. And I also negotiated a sit-down with another famed human being who, you may or may not know, also happens to be an ardent peace activist. And that is the President of the United States. Well, kinda. I sat down with the man who played the President of the United States. Jed Bartlett on the TV show The West Wing.
1: When I agreed to do the character, I only asked for two things that he'd be Catholic and that he have a Notre Dame degree.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's Martin Sheen, and of course, my being a Notre Dame alum, I already liked him. In addition to his role as President Bartlett, he is also well known for numerous other roles, such as those in Apocalypse Now, The Departed, and the TV show Grace and Frankie. But off-screen, he's been a devoted activist. He's actually been arrested with the previously mentioned James Lawson and John Deere, sharing a jail cell with him, in fact. And you've been arrested, what, 60-something times in your social activism work? I, I
1: uh, I only started keeping count because of my age.
0: So today, we leave the movies and TV behind, mostly, and talk with Martin Sheen in his home in Malibu about his faith and his life of activism. So born in Ohio children of immigrants.
1: Yeah, yeah, both my parents were immigrants. My father was from Spain and my mother from Ireland. You know my real name?
0: Yes, what would you say it say it for?
1: Ramon Gerardo Esteves.
0: Esteves. Esteves.
1: Esteves. My father was a Gallego from Galicia, and so they had the very strong T-H sound. Uh, Gracias. Mm. para another. Yeah. You know, so I'm, uh, I'm from <laughs>
0: Alabama. I can hardly do foreign foreign accents. <laughs> 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 so oh, so growing up, I guess as far as early childhood activism experience, I've I've read a story about you as a caddy that maybe. The origins of your social activism?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was was working for uh, Senator Brown in Ohio some time ago, and I told him that story, and that's his favorite story. He always tells people, did you know that Martin was a union organizer at the age of 14? Yeah, we we tell that story for us. Well, uh, I was working at a, a very exclusive private club in Dayton, and they were a A bunch of airheads, basically. I mean, they were racist and anti-Semite. And, you know, they worshiped a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus who was probably (laughs) born somewhere in Indiana. Who knows? So I I, I was caddying there for about five years at the time. And that kind of elitism, you don't want to know the name of the servant. So it was just caddy. Caddy this and (laughs) caddy that. And we were judged on our etiquette and our skills, of course. And and we would placate these idiots. We, we would club them. Do, do you know what that term means? No. It doesn't mean to hit them over the head. <laughs> I almost wish it, we could have done that with the golf club. But club them means we would advise them what I club see. to use yeah. in the circumstance because we knew the golf course, yeah. you know, from the approach to the pins and what club to use and blah, blah, blah. It's endless. And so we were judge on those kind of skills. But the fundamental understanding was you're a servant and don't get too personal with these people, but I I decided that you know we were the boys were always complaining about how badly they were treated, how little money they made for how much work they did, you know. And mind you, we would most golf courses are not flat. If you're carrying doubles, means two bags, you're serving two guys at the same time, and you're walking up some of those hills. You're walking four miles with like, in some case, eighty pounds on your back. And at that time, the most you could make was $4 and 25 cents. If you got the 75 cent tip with a fin, we call it a fin, it's a fiver, that you were lucky. And sometimes at the end of the day, you'd come in and they'd go in the clubhouse and start playing cards and getting drunk. And you'd wait out there until after dark before they before realized, you know, they'd be coming out to go home and you're sitting there waiting for them to pay you. That was normal. And they'd say, oh, excuse me, sorry about that. Oh, hey, yeah, sorry. And they dig in their pockets for something, you know, for enough to pay you. But so we decided to end that. We wanted to be treated as human beings, and we wanted to be paid for our labor. So I called the lads out and said, you know, if we're going to get their attention, we have to strike. And so, yeah, so we walked out. The caddy master came and said, excuse me, what's going on? I said, well, we're not working today. I told you, we we have grievances here. We want to do Oh, man, come on, lads, you know, don't listen to him, you know, and it went on and on, and it went on for about four or five days, I remember. And it got down to where <laughs> gradually they, they destroyed our ranks, and it got down to two guys, my brother, Alfonso, and I. <laughs> and so it ended with uh, Al finally saying, you know, brother, I think uh, it's a lost cause, but, you know, I'm proud of you. And if you want to go, I'll support you. You I learned early that.
0: about the machination to power. Very much yeah. so,
1: yeah. yeah. So we caved in. I came back, and they asked me to come back, actually, because I was a very good caddy. <laughs> All of us were, and they were losing some really skilled labor. Yeah, so yeah. so I swallowed my pride and I went back. But those, that lesson was the uh, first one that uh, made a profound change. Formative. In, yeah, very formative.
0: Formative experience. Yeah. You've talked publicly about kind of wandering away or letting go of or not taking seriously, I'm not sure the language there, your faith for some time. Mm-hmm. And then it's called uh, ego. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> ego. Here you go. <laughs> Do I remember correctly that it was about the time you were filming the Gandhi film in India that that was a kind of a important time of you beginning to come back to your faith, or what were some of the key elements?
1: Well, I that was the culmination of a couple of years. That was in eighty one, but in seventy seven, I was in the Philippines finishing up the last couple of months of apocalypse, and I got, I found myself alone one night, and I thought I was having a heart attack, and I got very, very sick, and and I, I guess I nearly died.
0: Numerous news outlets report that Martin did, in fact, have a heart attack amidst the notoriously tumultuous filming of Francis Ford Coppola's apocalypse now. He was airlifted in a chopper to Manila for treatment. With his wife, Janet, by his side, he spent a month recovering before returning to the set as in his words, a changed man.
1: It was a wake-up call, you know, that I realized that uh, I needed to get I needed to get balanced more. I was so egocentric and so career oriented. Yeah, you know, I was 3637 at the time. It was the first big job of my life and I knew that I, I was going to be if I survived, I was going to be more in demand and I could make a living doing mm-hmm. this thing. And so I, I ought not to uh, blow this opportunity. But at the same time, I, wasn't, I, I was so splintered. I was so scattered, you know. And I needed to find a way to bring all the pieces back together. That's the best way I can explain mm. it, and because I was so fragmentated, I was this person I was this way with this person and that way with this person, and with myself, I was so torn and divided it was I was ineffectual doing anything with family or career or anything, mm. and I was not leading basically a very honest life, or leading a very dishonest life, frankly and Janet, on the other hand, and we married uh, almost twenty years by then, was just always a straight. Honest person. and I was, it was for me, honesty was a sometimes thing, you know mm-hmm. she she couldn't count on me, but I could always count on her. And I decided after that wake-up call, I had to find a way to get get to a level of understanding or freedom or honesty, whatever you want to call. It. I don't think you can separate them. And so it really started to get clear when i I went I went to India with Emilio in in, uh, January of 81 to do a part on Gandhi. And I I had been in some third world countries like, you know, like the Philippines and Mexico and a few others that I saw horrible poverty, but I'd never seen institutionalized poverty Hmm. like that. I mean, it was just so accepted and there was so much. It was horrible. I mean, it it was poverty on top of poverty. Like there, there was no end to it it was generational and it and it foreclosed the future. I was in a crowd at one point. Uh, they estimate about a million people in the scene, the oh. opening scene of Gandhi's funeral. Yeah. And uh, to just be a part of that enormous size of humanity. And I thought, you will never see these people again, ever. And of course you don't, you know, and that's, becomes pretty much the course every day in the third world. You're never going to see them again. They can't come where you live, and, hmm. and you can leave any time because you got a, an old USA passport. And that made a profound in, imprint on me. And I decided that I really needed to, to make an adjustment in my life. At any rate, I came home from India with a vacuum of what, the next thing I would do. And so i gotten an offer to go to Paris and do this film. And so I started working on this little film. And I, I remember Sam Neill was in it. I was so impressed with his character. He was living at a hotel called the Hotel Lenix, And he said, you ought to come over there and see if you can get a room. And so I came over to this place. It was in the left bank. And, and he took me up and he showed me this magnificent, he had kind of a two-story room on the top of the hotel, this little tiny hotel on the left bank. And I said, "Wow, well, I'd like to go. And I went down in the desk. No, we don't have any uh, rooms. And, I, and he said, you can have mine. I said, oh, no, no. He said, "I insi-. and he did. He moved out. And he insisted I move in. And I did. And it became like for me a monastery. Huh. And I just loved this room. And it was like there was a skylight. And, I, and I'd wake up in the mornings. I'd order a cappuccino and a croissant. They'd bring the paper. And I'd read. And I'd and on the terrace. And it was just, ah. Oh. And I had all these <laughs> books I had to read. And then one day I was walking down the Rue Jacob and I see a guy on the other side of the street and he sees me and we recognize each other instantly. And I said, I said, Terry, is that you? And he said, Martin, is that you? I said, he's from Texas, you know, Oklahoma. <laughs> I said, Yeah, well, what all are you doing here? I said, Well, I'm doing a little film. I said, What are you doing here? He said, Well, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you're just, you're just kind of, you know, reevaluating my life and I've been <laughs> remarried and I'm living here and I'm writing script and all that. Stuff. And we started talking and we talked for like the next three months almost every day. And this is it's Terrence Mallet. This is Terrence Mallet. Yeah became for lack of a better phrase and i know he wouldn't approve of but he became like a spiritual advisor he's a very very deeply spiritual man and wrote scholar of course he spoke four languages and, and had this thirst for this spirituality mm. that he lived you know He'd give me books to read huh. all the time, endlessly. And we'd discuss the books after I huh. read them. And the film that I was doing, I can't even remember the name, God forgive me, and I hope that Sam Neill will forgive me. But uh, <laughs> it was became I, I, it was an annoyance. I had to go to work every day, every now and then, <laughs> do some, a few days on the film, because I, I was so engaged in this revelatory reawakening of our friendship and it, it, the effect he was, it was having on me. And and the last book he gave me was The Brothers' Karma. Oh, my. And I started reading it, and I could not stop reading it. And Mm. It's a pretty thick book, and I read it thoroughly in five or six days. And by the end of it, coincidentally, I had a day off. And I woke up the morning after I finished reading The Brothers Karamazov, and I said, well, I guess this is the day. And I walked from the Lennox Hotel on the left bank across the river and all the way over to the right bank— to this church called St. Joseph on the Avenue Osh, which is not far from the Arc de Triomphe and the Red right mm. Bank. and Because I used to go there occasionally. It was an English-speaking church. It was the only one in Paris, and it was serviced by these redemptionist fathers from Ireland. Mm. So it was in English. And I had this intention that I needed to get back to my foundation. I needed to to start living an honest life because now I understood how important it was, because to lead a dishonest life is the death of the soul, basically. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve the flesh and your spirit. You have to find a way to unite the will of the spirit to the work of the flesh in order to lead an honest life. And so I realized how important it was. And for me, I wanted to return to the Catholic Church, which had changed so drastically from the time I left it, you know, with Vatican II. Yeah. And I wanted to join the church that served human rights, uh, social justice, and peace, and the church of Mother Teresa and Dan Berrigan, and Pope uh, John XXIII, who started the whole thing. And so I marched over there on May Day, 1981, and I found that church, and I banged on the door. It was around (laughs) noon o'clock, and I banged on the door, and I banged again on the door. No answer, no answer, no answer. finally last ditch effort rouse somebody there and i hammered on the door like uh, martin luther must have done back in the day and and no answer and so i walked down the steps and by the time i got to the bottom of the steps i heard the door fly open and i look up and there's that guy that redemptionist priest and he had a napkin and it and he had little food on his chin and it was like i knew i had interrupted his lunch He said, what is it what's going on i said uh, Oh, oh, Father, I'm I, sorry to bother you. I haven't been to confession in many years, and I'd like to go to confession. And he looked at me, <laughs> and something behind his eyes said, you know, this is what I do for a living. You came to the right place, not to worry. And he said, uh, "He said, can you come tomorrow? It's uh, Saturday at noon o'clock, and, uh, and we'll do that. And I said, I'd be delighted. And he said, don't be late. I have a wedding at one, 1 o'clock. I said, I won't, and that was it. I came back the next day at the appointed hour and I was the only one in the church. It was stone empty and I went in the box. He came out and I went in the box and I went to confession and he gave me, and it's been a long time, and he gave me a penance. You know what confession is, right? He gave me a penance and he said, now I want you to say one hour father. And I said, one, our Father, and he said, "Yes." He said, "You haven't been gone that long that you've forgotten the Our Father." And I said, "No, no, I remember, and I'm just a little surprised." Yeah, just say that, and and now make a good act of contrition, and I did. And he left the box, and and I walked out into the empty church. I burst into tears. I wept with a measure of joy that I had never experienced before and it still it still moves me to talk about it to remember it i wept with such joy and such relief mm. and i was so happy to be home mm. i'd finally gotten back home and i remember sitting in the pew and the tears were f- flooding my face and the snot was pouring out of my nose and <laughs> I, I went looking in my pocket for something to wipe all this away and there was nothing and there, and I looked down on the floor and there was a somebody had dropped a Kleenex there and I grabbed it <laughs> and soaked my face in it. it was all I had it was the happiest day of my life because huh. I'd returned to my true self mm. and I began to I began to become myself, basically, and I I resolved to serve, you know, and that was it. And I I, I don't know what else to say. I uh, that was forty one years ago. Yeah, it's been the most difficult decision and the hardest time imaginable, but equally the happiest.
0: You're listening to No Small Endeavor and our conversation with Martin Sheen. I love hearing from you. Tell us what you're reading, who you're paying attention to, or send us feedback about today's episode. I recently heard from a listener who wrote, and I quote, I love the show and have been listening for several years. Only recently, when a guest called you Lee, did I realize your first name is not Lacey. Please give a moment's pause between Lee C. Camp. End quote. So, for the record... I am Lee C. Camp. There's actually a comedian named Lee Camp, hence my use of my middle initial C, which, if you're interested, stands for Compton, Lee Compton Camp. And though my students find me quite entertaining, I'll leave the comedy to the professionals. As always, you can reach me at lee at nosmallendeavor.com. You can get show notes for this episode in your podcast app or wherever you listen. These notes include links to resources mentioned in this episode and a PDF of my complete interview notes, including material not found in this episode, as well as a transcript. I think we might also have some photos there of my time with Mark Sheen on the show notes. And by the way, we're releasing an unabridged version of this interview with Mr. Sheen, which you can also get only on our podcast. Hey friend, if you didn't know, I started a newsletter a while back that comes out every two weeks. I've been delighted to hear from so many of you about positive response to the newsletter. We call it the No Small Endeavor Notebook, where I riff on themes and topics related to our podcast, giving you additional material for thinking and doing in your own quest to make sense of what it might mean to live a good life. Join us by going now to nosmallendeavor.com and sign up there. Again, go to nosmallendeavor.com to sign up now for our free No Small Endeavor notebook newsletter. No Small Endeavor is supported by Lipscomb Health, encompassing Lipscomb University's healthcare programs, partnerships, and initiatives. Lipscomb Health prepares health professionals and administrators through purposeful learning characterized by compassionate care, interprofessional learning, collaborative care, and clinical experiences, all hallmarks of Lipscomb's Christ-centered health education. You can learn more about Lipscomb Health at lipscomb.edu/health. So, out of that then you you have a strong heritage in the Catholic tradition, yeah. Catholic social teaching then yeah. that makes sense of your the way your activism is grounded mm, is inseparable yeah. from your faith going forward, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, and you've been arrested what sixty something times in your social activism work. I,
1: I started. Uh, I only started keeping count because of my age. I thought yeah. I, <laughs> I got a lot of work to do here, but there, but but the, I couldn't really separate any of the issues from whether it was homelessness or uh, nuclearism, which was the you know the state religion. Basically, huh. you know, we were arming because we didn't trust God and we were not nonviolent, we were extremely armed and dangerous, and nuclearism had to be confronted. And so I got involved in the anti nuke movement through the, the Berrigans, basically. Yeah. Uh, and Dan you were very Berrigan. close
0: friends to with Dan Berrigan. I was he was yeah. my hero. Yeah. 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 Very so much for so. those who don't know much about Dan and Phil Berrigan, would you just very briefly give kind of a snapshot of some of their work?
1: Well, they were two Catholic priests. Dan Berrigan was a Jesuit and his brother Phil was a Josephite. Phil was a World War II combat veteran, hmm. and I didn't he remember came, that. Yeah, yeah, he came home from the service and 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 followed his vocation. was ordained, and he started serving in the South. The Josephites are basically in service to uh, Black Americans. That's their primary mission. And then Dan was a Jesuit and was a scholar and a poet and and a very revered Jesuit. And they became friends with the birth of pacifism in the United States, really, in the modern era, from a monk in Kentucky, who was uh, Thomas Merton. And uh, they came together on it, and it culminated with the war in uh, Vietnam. And they started early protests, burning of draft cards and so forth. They, The first confrontation they had with the so draft board. They Catonsville. War? They were the Catonsville Nine. And... Um, They went to prison, and Dan almost died in prison. And they were a great source of inspiration to a lot of us in the movement. And I remember something Dan said while he was awaiting, after he was captured and was on his way to prison, they had kind of a goodbye gathering for his friends and family and all. And Dan said, "Uh, you know, the only way we're going to end this war is if we fill the prisons. ¶¶ that's the only way that the government is going to realize that this is going to end. We're going to end it. We're just not going to participate. And if it means uh, that we have to protest, and protest so that they put us in, let's fill the prisons and, instead of the uh, graveyards of uh, Southeast mm-hmm. Asia. Mm-hmm. And someone in the audience said, well, that's all well and good. Father Berrigan, for you to uh, advocate our oh, going to prison, we have children. What about our children? What's going to happen to our children if we go to jail? And Dan said, what's going to happen to them if you don't? Mm. That's, that's where the truth lies, mm. right? And so Dan and Phil had this peace and justice advocacy which crossed all the lines in the church and all areas of the culture really but specifically in the peace and justice movement within the catholic church mm-hmm. and post Christi and some of the others very specific catholic attention to peacemaking in the cold during the cold war and specifically during the vietnam war which is critical so i met i you know dan and they had both been an inspiration to me but i, I hadn't met either until uh, i came back to the church Hmm. And I was offered in 1981, shortly that summer after I'd converted, reconverted in Paris, that summer, I was invited to come to New York to do a documentary with a, a very radical filmmaker named Emilio D'Antonio. He was making a film based on another action that the Bergen brothers had led in the King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, where they they barged into a general electric plant there that builds and assembles the MX-12 missiles. And they banged on the nose cones of these missiles with hammers and poured their blood on them. They were fulfilling the prophecy that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and so forth. And so they called themselves the plowshares. And Emilio Antonio got the trial record. They were all convicted uh, But they were on appeal, and he wanted to do a documentary. But he wanted the participants, the defendants, to play themselves. Hmm. And he asked me to play the judge, Judge (laughs) Kaufman. (laughs) Well, I said, I would love to do that. So, I mean, you you had the sense that, you know, when you're going to meet Dan Berrigan, after all you've heard about him, he's got to be at least eight feet tall, right? But here was this very slight, very handsome, thin, kind of frail guy with this great energy and this... magnificent sense of humor, and he was so funny. There was a story. I didn't see it, but I heard it. But he was speaking at a very uh, conservative Catholic church, and he got up in the pulpit to speak, and there was an American flag on his right and the papal flag on his left, and he said, he looked at both of them, and he said to the crowd, well, now I have a sense how Jesus felt being crucified between two thieves. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah the vatican didn't hold a lot of uh, promise for dan
0: john deere uh, describes dan in the same way with a sort of joyful spirit wonderful sense of humor you you know you strike me as a joyous strike yeah (laughs) that's good i'm still you impress me as a (laughs) joyous human being and right. so I think a lot of times when people will think about social justice activists, one of the stereotypes is a sort of kind of sharp edge. But but oh, you yeah, seem to yeah. have this sort of sweetness about you. And Dan sounds like he has a sweetness <laughs> about him. How, how do you see the sort of social activism that requires you to take this kind of strong stance vis-a-vis the powers of the world and the sort yeah. of joy that you carry around?
1: You know, from... From the time I came back to the church, I, I felt a rejuvenation in my life of when I started. As a child, I had a sense of knowingness. And I can't really describe it
0: Knowing, anymore. N- a knowingness.
1: There's a knowingness about uh, the mystery. The, the, the children have a sense of mystery and, it, and it's all deeply personal, that, that that seemed to be the equalizer. That there was something mysterious, and so you would see it in others. You'd say, What, what is that with that guy? What? Or what is that with that lady, or that girl, or that person? Or why are they this and that?" You know, it was like that. People attracted you more by what they were doing than what they were saying. Hmm. And I think that that was the the thing that attracted me so much to to Catholicism was this human spirituality, this deep sense of what it meant to be human. And there's only one word for it, and that's compassion. Mm. You saw it in these people that were teaching us and these people that were parenting us. They were people who were who who understood the mystery of what it meant to be human. Mm. And and that's that magic word, compassionate I call mm. it. And when I got to New York and I you know, suddenly started to get, you know, recognized and started making a living for this thing I love to do. So I thought oh, that's it I, i'm I'm the mystery, you know, I'm what it's all about here. okay, fine. And then when I ended up in the toilet, you know, crawling around on the on the floor of the jungle in the Philippines trying to find my way to the 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 road, I realized, you know that that's what it it leads to, huh. you know and so I knew that i I knew that I had had lost the compassion for myself, hmm. you know hmm. and so it, it was a natural progression to return to the church because I never really left it in that sense. You know, how people always say, Well, I'm looking for God. No, no, no. God already found you. Mm. It's like you it's right there, you know. It's right there. And it's like the older I get, the more dependent I become on accepting huh. my frailties and my mortality, my humanity, you yeah. know, the more I I appreciate that that I came to understand what it meant to love myself. It was the recognition that I was loved. Hmm. And that's what I give thanks and praise for every day. Hmm. When I remember.
0: (laughs) 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 You're listening to No Small Endeavor and our episode with Martin Sheen. going to take a short break, but coming right up, Martin shares his story of sharing a jail cell with peace activists John Deere and James Lawson, and what it was like to smoke a cigarette and yell at God in both English and Latin, mind you, in the National Cathedral as President Jed Bartlett on the TV series The West Wing. You end up in jail one day with Jim Lawson yes oh would you God. tell us that story
1: I'm only reluctant because it sounds like I'm bragging and I am yeah <laughs> I promise you John and <laughs> I'm, I'm I, inviting uh, you. I'm inviting okay you. Yes, well John to, and I were John arrested Deere. John Deere and I were arrested we had belonged to a coalition of laity and clergy concerned here in Los Angeles against the war in El Salvador in Central America. And when the Jesuits were murdered, uh, our protests became, became very intense. And we began to meet, and we formed a group called the Wednesday Morning Coalition of all of religious and laity concerned, mostly uh, Catholic but not re- confined to Catholic. There were a lot of ministers and uh, of all religions and rabbis who joined us. And we would assemble downtown in L.A. at La Placita, and the little church there. And we would march to the federal courthouse, and we would shut it down every Wednesday morning. Hmm. They'd see us coming. We were totally nonviolent, but we would, you know, it was a serious intent, but we we came with great compassion and not without humor. And we would chain ourselves so they couldn't get in the doors. (laughs) We'd get there before anybody else, you know, like 7 o'clock in the morning. And so, you know, by the time they were ready to open, they couldn't get the door. So they would arrest us. and. And we it went on for you know I remember I, I had I, I went to court finally for 13 arrests, you know and I had to account for, and I couldn't remember having, having had that many. but any anyway, rate, on one of them, we ended up in the basement of that building, uh, which was a holding cell for undocumented. and it was a huge room, and uh, they had us all in there handcuffed and seated on the floor. We were required to seat on the floor. And John and I were were sitting next to each other and on the floor and uh, our hands behind our backs, handcuffed. And uh, the door would open every now and then. It was a huge room and more people would be uh, brought in and, and joined us. And by and by, the, the whole room, the uh, rectangular room, was filled with all the protesters. And uh, at one point, John said, Hey, don't look now, but you see that guy over there? I said, "Who, who Who's that? He said the guy on the other side, I think that's James Lawson. I said, who? He said, Reverend James Lawson. And he told me the story of how Reverend Lawson uh, led the protest in Memphis for the garbage uh, strikers. uh, And he encouraged Reverend King to come to Memphis. And uh, they were very, very close friends. And that was their relationship, you know, and that he was the hero of uh, Memphis. And one of the great heroes of the nonviolent movement. And I said, oh, my God, that's him? Then I remembered seeing footage of him yeah. during the uh, civil rights protests and so forth uh, and how close he was to Reverend King. And there, there he was, right across from us. And so, by, by and by, Reverend uh, Lawson inched his way up the wall with his hands behind his back, and he was kind of stretching there and trying to you know, uh, get more comfortable. And the guard came in and said, you! you get down you know uh, on on the floor uh, you you're not you're not allowed to stand up now get down on the floor and he said i'm sorry I said, i'm talking to you mister you get your ass on the floor and the quicker the better and he said, please listen to me. I'm, I'm having a great deal of pain in my shoulders and my hands are numb and I can't sit on the floor anymore. So respectfully, I'm going to stand. He said, mister, I'm telling you for the last time, you better get your ass on the floor and do it now. Again, I have to tell you, seriously, I'm in a lot of pain. Please forgive me. I don't mean to disobey your rules here, but I cannot. And and there was a silence and an, there was a, a palpable concern about what was the next move everybody there was dead silence you could hear people breathing but nobody was talking and the Reverend Lawson was leaning on the wall he had his head back up and his eyes were closed and I thought oh my god that is the bravest thing I've ever seen in my life and the guy came back in and he had some other officers with him and he said there he is and he said mister I'm telling you for the last time you better get your ass back on the floor we're not fooling around and he said, again, I have to tell you, I'm in a great deal of pain, and I'd appreciate it if you'd let me stand. They started coming at him, and I inched up the wall. And they said, what do you think you're doing, mister? You better get your ass back down. And I said, the bravest thing I ever said in my life, I said, I'm standing with the preacher (laughs) and the whole room got up and everybody said, I'm standing with the preacher and the guards got flabbergasted and angry and started yelling and left Mm. and slammed the door. So that was my introduction to him and uh, my gratitude to him is enormous. I saw the kind of courage he had. And I thought, my God, he was in the middle of Memphis and his dear friend was shot down, Reverend King. And he was with those workers saying, I am a man. And he was there years before.
0: Yeah, when I saw him, when I saw him last Sunday, he, he lit up when I told him I was going to get to see <laughs> you. So, so let, oh, me, let, me, let me shift to another thing I want to raise with you, and I and I think it's related to what we've been discussing, but I want to go to the West Wing just a second. Okay. I think that my favorite scene, and I'm not just flattering you, but it's, it's my favorite scene from television is the scene you do, President Bartlett does in the West Wing in the National Cathedral. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems to me that that scene encapsulates what, People of faith at some point, so often come to not in spite of their faith, but because of their faith, when they're so frustrated at the brokenness of the world. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. what did that? What you know? For those who haven't seen it, we'll, we'll note a, a link to it in the show notes so people can go watch it. And I watched it again last night, and I, really? I and I must oh, I must wow. say I must say that I kind of flinched several times yeah. watching it because it's so. <laughs> I mean, you're, the president is you know he's so angry yeah. and profane. Yeah. And because of his grief, and, um, and then lights a cigarette and drops it on the floor and stomps it out in the middle of the National Cathedral. Yeah. But what, is that, what does that kind of scene mean, mean for you as a human being, or, or did it mean much to you when you did, did that scene? Yeah,
1: it did, yeah. Well, when I first came back to the church, there was a priest here, God rest him, uh, uh, Father Bud Kaiser. Who was a Paulist father, and their mission is to to reach the non-Catholic world. And so he was had a mission here in Los Angeles, St. Paul's Church, and he founded a, a little film company, and they produced a, a series called uh, Insight, and then with these little half-hour morality plays, so forth, uh, that he, he had Sunday morning time, you know, they'd give him. And so uh, I became very close to him, and he became a great inspiration. I remember I came back to the church, I went to see him, and I told him, I'm back. And he said, this is just the honeymoon. You don't know what you're in for. (laughs) And he was right. (laughs) Um, But he, he told me once that he would do that every so often, that he would get so frustrated with what he was trying to do with his life, and he just didn't seem to be getting anywhere. And God was not helping out. Hmm. Thank you very much. And so he would lock up the church, huh. literally, and have it out with God. Huh. How could you do this to me? I mean, he's like Job, you know, or like Tevye. You know, Tevye would say, how could you do this to me? On the other hand, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's that great thing where, you know, uh, we have the, uh, the relationship that God becomes human, which transcends everything. I mean, that's the greatest change in the universe yeah. is that God becomes human, you know. And so Bud uh, Kaiser, you, you know, talk to God like a human being. I'm mad at you today, mm. and and I got good reason, and you're going to hear every one of them, mm. and so you better listen, and he would have it out. And I thought, wow, that's therapeutic, and it's theological, and it's Job, mm. you know? And so I, I thought of that. And so when I got the script, I thought, oh, my God, this is what this guy is doing. He's going to have it out with mm-hmm. with, with God. And th- the only difference was he— and uh, Aaron Sorkin chose to have me do half of it in Latin. Well, yeah. I'd, I'd been an altar boy when I was young, and so I knew how to kind of do the Latin. But I wasn't quite sure because there's a lot of ter- differences in Latin if you're, if you're German or Italian. There's a big difference in the Latin pronunciation. So I went to our parish priest here, Monsignor Sheridan, whom I told you has passed away now. But he's an Irish priest and a scholar. And so I, I, I learned the scene huh. with him, the Latin huh. portions. He told me how it would be done in the west and so i learned it and uh when i got to washington we shot at, it at, at, in the cathedral mm-hmm. you know and there was a lot of objection to it not only because i, I was profane but the cigarette whoa and the members of the hierarchy in the church were there and they were not happy when we were doing that scene and at one point during the break i remember when we were doing covers. i did the master and then we were doing covers. and i went back to sit down like in the middle and some of them were not looking very happy and i said uh, you have some concerns about this You know we do, but, you know, we were told to let you film here, and that's fine, we have no thing over And I just, I couldn't believe, it. when I looked up, kind of, what what do I say about this? And if you look where I was standing, there was a stained glass of Job. Oh, my. And I said, well, if you look up there, you know, and that's what I'm relating this to, it's Job. You know, he's having it out with the creator. Oh, they said, ah, oh, well, we didn't get that. You know, what was it necessary about the cigarette? And I said... Well, I don't even smoke anymore, so I, I, I'm not, I'm not thrilled about that. But you know, they asked me to do it as a sign of disrespect or, you know, despair. I said, I guess it's both, and so I did it, and uh, and they came around, you know, yeah. <laughs> they they got it, but I didn't have any hesitation doing it, and I learned it by rote, and hmm. uh, when we got to the theater, I remember doing the master in one take, oh and remember, really, yeah, and after we did it, I I went over just to you know relax a little bit in the dark and Aaron Sarkin came over and he just said thank you
0: Hmm.
1: that's all he said said, Hmm. and it it was just like he he didn't expect to say it he didn't realize the power of the scene Hmm. he's not Catholic you know and he he you know when I when I agreed to do the character i only asked for two things that he'd be catholic and that he have a notre dame degree
0: (laughs) which of of course i liked i like that part (laughs) is that playing the dozens or what
1: you know i'm not saying i want it my way but i want it my way (laughs) and uh and that's that's what he said and he was so moved by it that's all he could say to me Mm. he just said thank you Mm. and it was like he didn't realize how powerful it was and i don't think any of us did yeah
0: well, we've got to get you out of here because okay. you're on your way to to mass. Yeah. But so, the last quick question: okay. What's the Eucharist mean for you? you? You do this regularly. I take it. Oh, so, uh, yeah. you know, I was just why? at a funeral
1: this morning, and I, yeah, as I went to, yeah, no, the Eucharist. I think it comes from the the Greek word. Uh, is it celebration?
0: Uh, giving of thanks, yeah. Thanksgiving. Okay,
1: yeah. yeah. Well, it's it. Uh, it's so deeply personal. I began to realize that yeah, if it's not personal, it's impersonal. Hmm. In the Catholic Church, of course, we don't we we don't accept it as a representation. We really believe that in the transubstantiation that it is not a representation of, but it is in fact, in our dogma, it is Jesus Himself who comes to us in the bread and the wine. And so just focusing on that, the prayer before communion is the most powerful. I barely can get it out. It's like, uh, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And I say that so personally and so needfully and honestly. And it's like, you know, it's you've called me here and I've come to see you again. And it's deeply, I, I'm very curious about how People pray. What do you see? What do you feel? How do you get there? Is it satisfying? And what keeps you coming back, you know? For me, it is is, part of the community. You can't do it alone. And you shouldn't. You should worship together. But there, you bring all of yourself. You bring your family, your history, your health, your brokenness, your own personal brokenness. And I began to realize how... Important it is to recognize that that the only way it seems to me that God can get in is through the broken parts, is when we're because that's when we're open and so our brokenness is really a blessing. So it's blessed brokenness, and it's like here comes the healing. This is this is you know it's it's recognizing God's presence in in Jesus and it's like wow you know it's like Joe Cosgrove once told me. He's a, he Notre Dame too, you know, and he studied theology and law, he's a lawyer. But he once said, you know, the only miracle that had no witnesses was the resurrection. Hmm. That's the only really important one because that's the one, (laughs) if everyone saw it, you know, uh, then it it wouldn't be a question of belief, it would be recognition. Of course, I saw him, you know. Yeah, he was lying there one minute, next minute he got up and said, hallelujah, let's, you know, uh, uh, celebrate. But no one saw it. Nobody saw it. And, you know, there are two favorite passages in the gospel for me. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, the women. It's about the women. (laughs) All those cowardly men were all hiding. They, They were fearing the same fate as the master. But the women were out there in front. You know, they were with him. And, and, and even when the master came back first time they saw him he didn't say where were you when they were beating me in christ I didn't see a single one of you say for the women of course but I didn't see it there. no he said peace be with you mm-hmm. he understands our brokenness our, our fear our, and that's what just I just become I just I just celebrate my blessed brokenness and I say and like that hymn here I am Lord that's all, I That's all I can bring today. Today I had a fight with so-and-so. Today I had a, you know, I, I trashed so-and-so. Today I refused to accept somebody. Someday I was unkind. Today I did this, I did that, I did that. And I, and I bring all that and I say, you know everything about me and so do I. Hmm. It's not just known to you. I know it too. I'm broken. Fix me, hmm. which is one of my favorite hymns. Hmm. Fix me. Hmm. I'm broken. There you have
0: it been talking to martin sheen here at his home in malibu thank you for your hospitality and your (laughs) and your generosity thank you thank you
1: it takes one to know one (laughs) i'm delighted to meet you
0: delighted to meet you thank you so much much. peace be with you brother peace be with you brother thank you you've been listening to no small endeavor and our interview with world-renowned actor and activist martin sheen You can hear our interviews with two of Martin's friends mentioned in this episode, both of whom he shared a gel cell with in the late 80s, John Deere and James Lawson. My conversation with each of them can be found on our podcast, including the unabridged interviews with each of them, available wherever you get your podcasts. We gratefully acknowledge the support of Lilly Endowment Incorporated, private philanthropic foundation supporting the causes of community development, education, and religion, and the support of the John Templeton Foundation, whose vision is to become a global catalyst for discoveries that contribute to human flourishing. Our thanks to all the stellar team that makes this show possible. Christy Bragg, Jacob Lewis, Sophie Byard, Tom Anderson, Kate Hayes, Mary Evelyn Brown, Ellis Osborne, Jason Sheasley, and Tim Lauer. Thanks for listening, and let's keep exploring what it means to live a good life together. No Small Endeavor is a production of Tokens Media, LLC, and... Great Feeling Studios.